Well, I'm going to continue with our commentaries on the Gospel. I mentioned last week that I did discuss this whole program again with the Master while I was over there, and he encouraged me to continue and said that it was very important that the satsangis understand how Satnat relates with the Bible. So I will do that. We've been, up until I left off, before Christmas, we were doing the Sermon on the Mount, which we finished at that time. And I want to return now, at least for a while, to the Gospel of John, which is where we was our main, the main source that we were following, the narrative in, in the Gospel of John. But we may leave that and do a number of the other um, selections from the other Gospels also. I left out, when we were doing the Gospel of John before, I left out the story of the marriage in Cana and the turning of the water into wine. Not on purpose, I mentioned it in passing, but somehow or other I skipped over it. And uh, I'd like to go over that now because that illustrates very important point without which it's hard to understand the Gospel, especially the Gospel of John. This is in chapter 2 of John, beginning at the beginning of the chapter with verse 1. And the third day, there was a marriage Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. When they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece which is to say, 18 or 27 gallons. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Now this story is a very controversial one. Um, I have... Satsangis have told me that this is not uh, this is not a good story that no master would turn uh, water into wine and then give it to his disciples to other people that it's an unworthy thing for him to do and if it were taken as straight out historical fact that would probably be a valid comment <clears throat> but in fact this story is not necessarily a historical event at all. It's a very symbolic story 
and acted out parable, one of the signs of which the first half of the Gospel of John is primarily concerned with. I mentioned in the very beginning that this is the way that this particular Gospel is written, that it is constructed around a series of so-called signs, which is the term used by John himself in the Gospel, and that each one of these signs is a story purporting to have happened in Jesus' life, which in fact sets forth a very important spiritual truth. And how many, most scholars consider that there are seven, there are seven miracles, there are some other events like the cleansing of the temple, which we went into quite a while back, which immediately follows the story in chapter 2, which also have this, this same um, character, although they are not miracles. Anyway, it is considered that there are seven of them, and some, some scholars have referred to this first half of the book as the book of signs, because it's constructed in that way. Then in the second half is the events associated with the, the final days and the crucifixion and so forth in the long farewell discourse. Now, therefore, the point of the story is not that Jesus got a lot of people drunk, but rather that um, that a very profound esoteric truth is being presented here at the very beginning of the ministry. Actually, before his ministry began, this is very early in the Gospel narrative, and it is almost certainly before John the Baptist was put into prison and Jesus began his public ministry, because that is the meaning of the phrase, mine hour is not yet come, which Jesus says to his mother, and she requests him to do something. So, it's important, of course, right at the beginning to understand that the wine that's referred to is obviously not physical wine, uh, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about this point, including by some of the later editors of the Gospels, too, throughout. Um, but it's important to recognize that Jesus did not, any more than any other master, advocate drinking wine and becoming physically intoxicated from it. Uh, the wine that he is referring to here, the wine that is referred to elsewhere in the Gospels, is the same wine that all masters have referred to, and it stands for um, inner intoxication, spiritual liberation, and the nectar of Nam, what is called Amrit, or elixir. And there's a lot of references to it in Book 3 of Master Kripal Singh's Nama Word. There are a lot of references to it from different world scriptures and different esoteric traditions, all of which point to the same thing, that from the beginning, outer intoxicating substances have been used as symbols for the inner intoxicating reality, which is to say the, the nectar of Nam. And there's, this is no exception here. In the discourse printed in last February's Santani called Out of the Madness of Love, which many of you have heard on tape here over the years, Master Kripal Singh comments a lot on his own poem, uh, in which he asks the Saki, the wine bearer, to bring him a pack of wine. And, uh, on the tape, when those of you who have heard it many times will remember, when Master explains this just before Taiji sings the song, 
he says, I'm asking, this is, I'm asking the cupbearer to bring one peck of wine. There is a pause, and then he says, of God intoxication. And there is a, a great hearty laugh from the audience, a laugh. I was there that night, and it is my opinion that this was a laugh of relief because the disciples were not sure um, why he was writing songs about bringing wine, which is similar to the reaction that I mentioned before on, in connection with this story. But the point is that it's a very ancient and well-established esoteric device to use <coughs> wine in this way, and it should be understood that way throughout the Gospels. Even at the Lord's Supper, in the so-called Lord's Supper, the last um, supper that Jesus ate with the disciples before the crucifixion, which time he gave them prashad in the form of bread and supposedly wine, there is an excellent scholarly evidence that originally that was commemorated by the early Christians with water, that wine was not used, that wine later came in due to a misunderstanding, a confusion of the symbolic and the physical. So it's important to to uh, be aware of this and not to get confused. This story is a profound symbolic story, not a not a disturbing historical one. Everything in it has a symbolic value, and I don't necessarily claim to be able to interpret it word by word. But um, we will do our best. Anyway, that much should be clear. Now, it's before his ministry has begun. His mother is there and his disciples. Now, the disciples are not formally initiates yet. The immediately, the narrative immediately preceding this in the Gospel of John, which we read a number of months ago, back when we were starting the series, um, there are people who have been attracted to Jesus and who later become initiates. Some of them were disciples of John the Baptist, um, who have had an irresistible attraction to him. So they are, in the sense of, I'd say, companions or proto-disciples um, in Sanchi's life. He had many people like this in the period before uh, he began his public ministry. Sadar Ratan Singh, for example, who built the underground room in which he meditated for several years before Master Kapal left the body, uh, was a disciple of this sort, not an initiate of his. He may have been initiated by Master in those days, I'm not certain. But in any case, he was a drawn to him very seriously, attracted to him, and was of great service to him, and then later became an initiate if he was not already initiated. So, Jesus and his companions attend the marriage. Now, marriage, in throughout the Bible, the marriage is a symbol, and very decidedly so, for the ultimate consummation of the soul with God. In the book of Revelation, which closes the Bible, and which, God willing, you may get into before the series is over, although it's, it's of a different order of complexity than the Gospels, in the book of Revelation, uh, the marriage feast of the Lamb is the overriding symbol, the main thing that um, all of the rest of the symbolism in the book relates to. And that is a book of consummation that represents the the, uh, the working out of the end of the story of creation. And so it is here 
the marriage is the is the uh, like a a foreshadowing or a a preview of the ultimate coming together of the soul with God. Now, whenever there is that particular way of looking at things, the soul is the female, and the male is God. That is the way that uh, that these are always depicted. So when Jesus addresses his mother, who is not named here, by the way, as woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. He is saying very simply that uh, she, she represents the disciples, the souls, and she is saying that they have no wine. It's like a prayer, a request, that they are lacking something. And she is asking for that which she knows he has in his power to give. When he says woman, emphasizing not, by the way, a derogatory term. I, sometimes if you address female people as woman today, it seems insulting, but nothing like that is meant. It was a, a straightforward term, although strange to be used by a son to his mother. That was, that was unusual, according to the best experts. And the reason is that, um, symbolically, she is not his mother in this story, but rather stands for the souls in general. So when he says woman, emphasizing the female aspect that she is the soul, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. In other words, my mission has not yet started and I'm not now in a position to do this which you want. But his mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. In other words, she does not withdraw her request, although she does not push it either. And it is a fact and this is part of the point of this story, that it is very difficult for masters to refuse a loving request made by their disciples. Very difficult. And they will almost invariably grant anything that is not positively harmful, even at whatever cost to them. And we do not know now what cost there was to Jesus of fulfilling this request because... um, it doesn't say, but there may well have been some some cost involved. So, the six water pots of stone, okay, two or three firkins, as the note explains, is 18 or 27 gallons. This is a lot of water that was turned into wine. And a lot of people, again, who take the story physically, found this, even if they had no objection to the idea of the water being turned into wine, found the volume embarrassing, that this was a great deal of wine to be turned on this company. Uh, And the point, of course, is it's the abundance. The same idea is in the prophecy about the streams in the desert and all sorts of prophecies in the Bible plus the sayings of the modern masters too that, uh, that it will, when it comes, when a master comes and the disciples come to get that which he has to give, that he gives and gives and gives abundantly. There is no physical limitation. It's a lot. And that is the the point here. Now the water, there are two. The water and wine symbolism is is on a couple of levels. But first of all, they've used up all the wine that they had already. Their own wine. Which, as soon as they taste the wine that Jesus gives them, they, uh, they instantly recognize the superiority of the kind that Jesus has given them. Okay, so their own wine is whatever kind of pleasure they have been able to get out of life so far unaided. 
they're on the line of worldly pleasure, you might say. Whatever they have been able to do without any help from above, that represents their own line. And they have run out of that. And Jesus is there. So, bringing the water, which they also already have, the water is already within them, but they are unable to get any effect from it until he does what, you see? And it doesn't even say what he does. There is no... All he has them do is fill the water pots with water, water that they already have, and then he tells them to take it out and to take it to the the governor or the the person in charge of the feast. So there is no presiding over any miracle exactly. It's just that when they take the water out of the water pots at his direction, they find that it is wine. So using the water that they already have, that which they were bringing, that which they had at their disposal, when they follow his directions, it becomes, without any great addition from outside, um, that which intoxicates, that which gives them what they desire to have. And this is, of course, a, a magnificent parable, I would say, of the exactly how the Master works within the human soul, that that which we already have is, as far as we are concerned, is water, because we can't derive any, any intoxication from it. But ultimately and essentially, it's wine. And when the Master, all the Master has to do is to bestow his attention on us, to take us under his wing or to give us his protection, and then all we have to do is obey his instructions. And that water that we have, maybe even dirty old well water, you know, not even very desirable, suddenly becomes the best wine that is possible to taste. And so much, so good, in fact, that the governor of the feast makes that little speech about how everybody at the beginning of the party sets forth good wine and so forth and so on. But you've kept the best until now. Probably that was a custom, and that, and the author makes use of it here to make his point that the wine is so much better than that which came before it that even when uh, drunk by people who have drunk a lot, they instantly recognize the difference. And so it is, because even, and I have seen many times, that even people who have drunk so much of their own wine, you might say, of the worldly pleasures, that they are jaded when they come into the presence of a master, if they have recognized that they have run out, that there is no more, nothing lies ahead of them in that line, uh, then they do instantly grasp that his wine is that much better. So this is the the meaning of that story, and there should not be any confusion about this. Um, a great many of the stories, not only in the Gospels, but told about other masters too, are of this type. They, it doesn't mean that they are not all historically accurate. They may or may not be. It's like the story of Jonah and the whale, if you want to take that as as a historically accurate in every detail story, you get into a great deal of trouble because um, it's difficult to fit it into what we know about the facts of, of biology and so forth. But as a parable, as a spiritual, sim- spiritually symbolic story uh, presenting an important and eternal truth, then it makes all the sense in the world. It becomes one of the most profound stories in the Bible. And s- with many other Incidents are the same. And many stories that the masters tell of today 
about past masters or even about, uh, in some cases, perhaps their own life, the primary point is symbolic and spiritual. It may be that, that uh, they historically happened too. But, for example, the story of Kabir and the king of Balak Bukhara, which Sanchi has told many times, Master Kripal has told many times, Sawan Singh told many times, and so forth, it's historically impossible because the king of Balak Bukhara, whose name was Ibrahim Adam, who was a very well-known Sufi saint, and whose life is very similar to the way it was depicted in the story, lived two or three hundred years before Kabir. That's a fact. He was, his, his life story appears in a book by the Sufi mystic Attar, published in the 1200s. Uh, and his life is presented there without reference to Kabir, although in other ways it's very similar. So what, what are we, what conclusions are we to draw from that? Obviously, the point of the story does not rest on whether, um, it historically happened exactly the way it's presented. And whether or not the story primarily tells something about the king of Bukhara, or whether it primarily tells something about Kabir, or a combination of both, is uh, you know up to us to to derive what benefit from it we can. And many stories, the story of Guru Nanak and the Fakir that Master Kripal relates in in the book Baba Jamal Singh, in a footnote where he sent his disciples to the Fakir to ask for water because there was a spring by the fakir's cabin where he was living and there was no water elsewhere and the fakir refused and said that uh, if your master is as great a saint as you think he is why can't he get water himself the disciples came back and told the master that and he sent them back again to ask one more time but they got the same answer so when they came back the second time Guru Nanak hit a rock with his open hand and instantly the spring that was going to the fakir's place dried up and the water was diverted and came out of that rock and the guru and his disciples drank their fill and left um, the spring coming out of that rock was then a permanent fixture and the imprint of his hand is on the rock and it is a great center of Sikh pilgrimage well whether or not the story actually happened uh, the point is very clear is the story basically very similar to the one we've just read from the gospel in which a profound point is being made and uh, it's not difficult to figure out the meanings if we look at it from this point of view but the the whether or not they actually happened is of secondary importance and we should realize that an awful lot of stories that get into scriptures and into the lives of saints are of this order just as they speak parables so they act parables, or parables are, you might say, invented to express certain things about them more clearly than could be done through, strictly speaking, historical fact. By presenting this story of the turning of the water into wine at the marriage feast, at the beginning, very beginning of the gospel narrative, a motif is, is set. You know, the, the idea of what Jesus is giving that which is symbolized by wine and how it's going to work through the begging and the intercession of his disciples and uh, where it's going to come from from that which they already have within them and what it's going to take the place of that which they have used up that is to say their own wine uh, all of these things are set forth in parabolic form 
and they are, are a dominant motif over the narrative that follows. So we should be aware of that. Now I want to um, skip to chapter 5. We have done most of the intervening sections of the Gospel of John over the past few months. And this is another uh, story. Uh, this may well be based on fact, as we have seen in connection with another healing miracle that Jesus did. But nonetheless, John uses this as a sign, as another sign, just like the other one, the one that we just read. And uh, after it, Jesus gives a long discourse, which we will not take up today. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is a Jerusalem by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day, it is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, Well, what man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was. He did not know who it was. For Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed, and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Now this story may very well be uh, a historical one, but the reason that it's in here, the reason that it has been selected out of the rest of the stories, is for its uh, symbolic and parabolic value. Because here we have... Uh, well, a lot of things at once. But the main thing is, is hinges around the character of the person who is cured. He is, he stands again like Dharamdas, who with whom he has many things in common, by the way. He stands for every man. And what are his characteristics? Well, uh, he's unable to cure himself, okay? Other people can do it, but he can't get into that pool. Now, it doesn't follow that he's been at the pool 38 years, even though he's been sick for 38 years. But he's probably been there off and on a lot, and he can never manage to get into the pool first. Now, 
I'll just mention that the verse which says about the angel going down into the pool and troubling the water is almost certainly not part of the original gospel. And, however, there is some explanation was needed, which is why it was added. And the, the setup of the man trying to get into the pool first, that only the ones who could get in first after the water was troubled would be healed, is a strange one and obviously um, is based on something. So no one is quite sure exactly how, um, what should have been there or what, what was the original reading there or what was assumed by the writer. In any case, the man could not help himself, which is the main point. And perhaps because the implication is he's a little bit backward, a little slow. And we see that um, this follows through. He does not know who Jesus was. He allowed him to just uh, go away without even finding out who he was. And when Jesus finds him afterwards, he seeks him out, in other words, a second time, he then, the man immediately betrays him. Although it is almost certain that he does not think that he is betraying him, he tells them as soon as Jesus goes, or actually the man goes, and tells the Jews that it was Jesus. And then they did persecute him, and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. So the, the personality of the, of the person healed here, the master comes and makes him whole gives him that which he has been wanting all his life, or at least a very long section of it, 38 years. He gives it to him without his asking in this case, although, of course, the fact that he's there at that spot means that he is implicitly asking. Gives him what he wants, and uh, the man immediately loses contact with him and is unable to locate him or to even know who he is. The master then seeks him out a second time and tells him, gives him the thing which points more clearly than ever to the symbolic value of the story. Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto thee. And here we have the same identification of forgiveness and healing that we, that we saw when we, when we studied the, um, one of the miracle stories of healing before, that the Master is definitely equating here uh, forgiveness of sin with the healing of the body a very strong um, teaching of karma in other words sin no more uh, your sins up to now have been forgiven and you have been made whole lest a worse thing come unto thee and uh, the idea here of course is to whom much is given much is expected he has been restored and I think that the wording of that statement makes it very clear that the primary meaning is spiritual, not physical. That the healing was ultimately a spiritual one. He was made whole from within, and now he has got to live up to that. Or he will be worse off than he was before. Similar to, um, how, if thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if... Uh, now I forget the exact wording, but if, if um, the light, how great is that darkness? If you lose that light, how great is that darkness? Is the idea of it. And then, of course, the man, innocently, no doubt, brings down a whole bunch of trouble on the master's head by irresponsibly talking about him.
and irresponsible behavior. And I think that this is one of the main themes of the story, although not the only one, that we are all of us more or less in this position, unable to help ourselves, impotent, paralyzed, those are the terms that are used for 38 years, seeing, having before us a vision of healing, but not being able to make use of it. The Master comes into our life, touches us, makes us whole, and we, the first thing that we do is lose him. And I think that it's fair to say that this is, one way or another, this is the story of all of us. The first thing that we do is lose him. When he seeks us out himself and warns us, we then betray him. And I think it's again fair to say that one way or another, that is the story of all of us. Now there are also in this story, almost as an afterthought, because it is not until the ninth verse um, that it's even mentioned, is the relation of the master to the law. And here, the Sabbath stands for the law as a whole, the law which ultimately is identified with that of the negative power. Although, as we have seen, that's an oversimplification, but that's the, the symbolic use of it here. And of course, the Jews, the use of the term Jews, as used by John, refers to the Jewish religious establishment. Everyone in this chapter is Jewish, not just the people who are called Jews. Uh, and it's important to realize that, that we are not, whatever the Gospel of John is, it is not and cannot be anti-Semitic, because not only the author himself, but every character in it, except for Pontius Pilate, um, is Jewish, good and bad. But the term Jews is used in a very special way to mean the uh, those who had arrogated to themselves perhaps the the glory of being Jewish whereas the religious leaders and so he is giving them the title that they no doubt wanted but there is a tremendous irony it is of course the whole point of the gospels is that Jesus and his disciples are fulfilling as he said himself they have come to not to destroy but to fulfill are fulfilling the promise of Judaism. So, the Sabbath motif, which we have come across before and will come up again, stands throughout the Gospels for the freedom of the Master to be above the law. And uh, in the discourse which follows, Jesus very strongly identifies himself. He says, My Father worketh hitherto, that is, he works up till now on the Sabbath day, and I work. In other words, if you want me to observe the Sabbath, then then you'd better tell God to observe the Sabbath. This is a very blasphemous answer from the point of view of Jewish law, and it amounts to, as the text says, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And that is a very accurate uh, statement of the implication of that sentence, what it would have had on his hearers. And next week we will take up from this point and consider uh, some of the ways in which masters reveal themselves along with concealing themselves 
In other words, it is not true that masters never reveal who they are or never say who they are, even though they invariably say that they never say who they are, just as they invariably say that they never do miracles. And yet we have seen that in fact they do many miracles. Uh, so, although it is true that they often do not say who they are, it is by no means invariably true. In Jesus, there are many instances when he identified himself in such a way as to not only tell anyone who wanted to hear who he was, but also to tell people who did not want to hear who he was. And this was part of the problem. So we'll continue with that next week. <laughs>